After two more queries, after two more quarries, the inhabited parts of Inganic seemed to end, and the road narrowed to a steeply rising yak path among forbidding black cliffs. Always on the right towered the gaunt and distant peaks, and as Carter climbed farther and farther into this untraversed realm, he found it grew darker and colder. Soon he perceived that there were no prints of feet or hooves on the black path beneath, and realized that he was indeed come into strange and deserted ways of elder time. Once in a while a raven would croak far overhead, and now and then a flapping behind some vast rock would make him think uncomfortably of the rumored Shantak bird. But in the main he was alone with his shaggy steed, and it troubled him to observe that this excellent yak became more and more reluctant to advance, and more and more disposed to snort affrightedly at any small noise along the route. The path now contracted between sable and glistening walls and began to display an even greater steepness than before. It was a bad footing, and the yak often slipped on the stony fragments strewn thickly about. In two hours, Carter saw ahead a definite crest, beyond which was nothing but dull gray sky, and blessed the prospect of a level or downward course. To reach this crest, however, was no easy task, for the way had grown nearly perpendicular and was perilous with loose black gravel and small stones. Eventually, Carter dismounted and led his dubious yak, pulling very hard when the animal balked or stumbled, and keeping his own footing as best he might. Then suddenly he came to the top and saw beyond, and gasped at what he saw. What the humph. <sighs> the path indeed led straight ahead and slightly down, with the same lines of high natural walls as before, but on the left hand there opened out a monstrous space, vast acres in extent, where some archaic power had riven and rent the native cliffs of onyx in the form of a giant's quarry. Far back into the solid precipice ran that cyclopean gouge, and deep down within earth's bowels its lower delvings yawned. It was no quarry of man, and the concave sides were scarred with great squares yards wide, which told of the size of the blocks once hewn by nameless hands and chisels. High over its jagged rim, huge ravens flapped and croaked, and vague whirrings in the unseen depths told of bats or urhags or less mentionable presences haunting the endless blackness. There Carter stood in the narrow way amidst the twilight with the rocky path sloping down before him, tall onyx cliffs on his right that led on as far as he could see, and tall cliffs on the left chopped off just ahead to make that terrible and unearthly quarry. <coughs> All at once the yak uttered a cry and burst from his control, leaping past him and darting on in a panic till it vanished down the narrow slope toward the north. Stones kicked by its flying hooves fell over the brink of the quarry and lost themselves in the dark without any sound of striking bottom. But Carter ignored the perils of that scanty path as he raced breathlessly after the flying steed. Soon the left-hand cliffs resumed their course, making the way once more a narrow lane, and still the traveler leapt on after the yak whose great wide prince told of its desperate flight. Once he thought he heard the hoofbeats of the frightened beast and doubled his speed from his encouragement. He was covering miles, and little by little the way was broadening in front till he knew he must soon emerge on the cold and dreaded desert to the north. The gaunt gray flanks of the distant impassable peaks were again visible above the right-hand crags, and ahead were the rocks and boulders of an open space which was clearly a foretaste of the dark and limitless plain. And once more those hoofbeats sounded in his ears, plainer than before, but this time giving terror instead of encouragement, because he realized that they were not the frightened hoofbeats of his fleeing yak. These beasts were these beasts were ruthless and purposeful, and they were behind him. Carter's pursuit of the yak became now a flight from an unseen thing, for though he dared not glance over his shoulder, he felt that the presence behind him could be nothing wholesome or mentionable. His yak must have heard or felt it first, and he did not like to ask himself whether it had followed him from the haunts of men or had floundered up out of that black quarry pit. Meanwhile, the cliffs had been left behind, so that the oncoming night fell over a great waste of sand and spectral rocks, wherein all paths were lost. He could not see the hoofprints of his yak, but always from behind him there came that detestable clopping, 
mingled now and then with what he fancied were titanic flappings and whirrings. That he was losing ground seemed unhappily clear to him, and he knew he was hopelessly lost in this broken and blasted desert of meaningless rocks and untraveled sands. Only those remote and impassable peaks on the right gave him any sense of direction, and even they were less clear as the gray twilight waned and the sickly phosphorescence of the clouds took its place. Then, dim and misty in the darkling north before him, he glimpsed a terrible thing. He had thought it for some moments a range of black mountains, but now he saw it was something more. The phosphorescence of the brooding cloud showed it plainly, and even silhouetted parts of it as low vapors glowed behind. How distant it was, he could not tell, but it must have been very far. It was thousands of feet high. <sighs> It was thousands of <clears throat> it was thousands of feet high, stretching in a great concave arc from the gray, impassable peaks to the unimagined westward spaces, and had once indeed been a ridge of mighty onyx hills. But now those hills were hills no more, for some hand greater than man's had touched them. Silent, they squatted there atop the world like wolves or ghouls, crowned with clouds and mists, and guarding the secrets of the north forever. All in a great half-circle they squatted, those dog-like mountains carven into monstrous watching statues, and their right hands were raised in menace against mankind. It was only the flickering light of the clouds that made their mitered double heads seem to move, but as Carter stumbled on he saw arise from their shadowy laps great forms whose motions were no delusion. Winged and whirring, those forms grew larger each moment, and the traveler knew his stumbling was at an end. They were not any birds or bats known elsewhere on earth or in dreamland, for they were larger than elephants and had heads like a horse's. <coughs> Carter knew that they must be the Shantak birds of ill rumor, and wondered no more what evil guardians and nameless sentinels made man avoid the boreal rock desert. And as he stopped in final resignation, he dared at last to look behind him, where indeed was trotting the squat, slant-eyed traitor of evil legend, grinning astride a lean yak and leading on a noxious horde, and leading on a noxious horde of leering shantacks to whose wings still clung the rime and nitre of the nether pits. Trapped though he was by fabulous and hippocephalic winged nightmares that pressed around in great unholy circles, Randolph Carter did not lose consciousness. Lofty and horrible, those titan gargoyles towered above him, while the slant-eyed merchant leapt down from his yak and stood grinning before the captive. Then the man motioned Carter to mount one of the repugnant shantacks, helping him up as his judgment struggled with his loathing. It was hard work ascending, for the shantack birds had scales instead of feathers, and those scales are very slippery. Once he was seated, the slant-eyed man hopped up behind him, leaving the lean yak to be led away northward toward a ring of carven mountains by one of the incredible bird col by one of the incredible bird colossi. There now followed a hideous whirl through frigid space, endlessly up and eastward toward the gaunt gray flakes. Toward the gaunt, toward the gaunt gray flanks of those impassable mountains beyond which Lang was said to lie. Far above the clouds they flew, till at last there lay beneath them those fabled summits which the folk of Inganic have never seen, and which lie always in high vortices of gleaming mist. Carter beheld them very plainly as they passed below, and saw upon their topmost peaks strange caves which made him think of those which made him think of those on Ingranic, but he did not question his captor about these things when he noticed that both the man and the horse-headed Shantak appeared oddly fearful of them, hurrying past nervously and showing great tension until they were left far in the rear. The Shantak now flew lower. The Shantak now flew lower, revealing beneath the canopy of cloud a gray barren plain whereon at great distances shone little feeble fires. As they descended, there appeared at intervals lone huts of granite and bleak stone villages whose tiny windows glowed with pallid light. And there came from those huts and villages a shrill droning of pipes and a nauseous rattle of crotala which proved at once that Inganic's people are right in their geographic rumors. 
for travelers have heard such <clears throat> for travelers have heard such sounds before and know that they float only from the cold desert plateau which healthy folk never visit that haunted place of evil and mystery which is lang around the feeble fires dark forms were dancing and carter was curious as to what manner of beings they might be for no healthy folk have ever been to lang and the place is known only by its fires and stone huts as seen from afar. Very slowly and awkwardly do those forms leap, and with an insane twisting and bending not good to behold, so that Carter did not wonder at the monstrous evil imputed to them by vague legend, or the fear in which all dreamland holds their abhorrent frozen plateau. As the Shantak flew lower, the repulsiveness of the dancers became tinged with a certain hellish familiarity, and the prisoner kept straining his eyes and racking his memory for clues to where he had seen such creatures before. They leapt as though they had hooves instead of feet, and seemed to wear a sort of wig or headpiece with small horns. Of other clothing they had none, but most of them were quite furry. Behind they had dwarfish tails, and when they glanced upward he saw the excessive width of their mouths. Then he knew what they were, and that they did not wear any wigs or headpieces at all, for the cryptic folk of Lang were of one race with the uncomfortable merchants of the black galleys that traded rubies at Dilath Lean. Those not-quite-human merchants, who were the slaves of the monstrous moon things. They were indeed the same dark folk who had shanghaied Carter on their noisome galley so long ago, and whose kith he had seen driven in herds about the unclean wharves of that accursed lunar city, with the leaner ones toiling and the fatter ones taken away in crates for other needs of their polypus and amorphous masters. Now he saw where such ambiguous creatures came from, and shuddered at the thought that Lang must be known to these formless abominations from the moon. But the Shantak flew on past the fires and the stone huts and the less-than-human dancers, and soared over sterile hills of gray granite and dim wastes of rock and ice and snow. Day came, and the phosphorescence of low clouds gave place to the misty twilight of that northern world, and still the vile bird winged meaningly through the cold and silence. At times the slant-eyed man talked with his steed in a hateful and guttural language, and the shantak would answer with tittering tones that rasped like the scratching of ground glass. All this while the land was getting higher, and finally they came to a windswept tableland, which seemed the very roof of a blasted and tenantless world. There, all alone in the hush and the dusk and the cold, rose the uncouth stones of a squat, windowless building, around which a circle of crude monoliths stood. In all this arrangement there was nothing human, and Carter surmised from old tales that he was indeed come to that most dreadful and legendary of all places, the remote and prehistoric monastery, wherein dwells uncompanioned, the high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face and prays to the other gods and their crawling chaos Nyarlat Hotep. The loathsome bird now settled to the ground, and the slant-eyed man hopped down and helped his captive alight. Of the purpose of his seizure, Carter now felt very sure, for clearly the slant-eyed merchant was an agent of the darker powers, eager to drag before his masters a mortal whose presumption had aimed at the finding of unknown Kadath and the saying of a prayer before the faces of the great ones in their onyx castle. It seemed likely that this merchant had caused his former capture by the slaves of the moon things in Dilathleen, and that he now meant to do what the rescuing cats had baffled, taking the victim to some dread rendezvous with monstrous Nyarlat Hotep and telling with what boldness the seeking of unknown Kadath had been tried. Lang and the cold waste north of Inganic must be close to the other gods, and there the passes to Kadath are well guarded. The slant-eyed man was small, but the great hippocephalic bird was there to see he was obeyed. So Carter followed where he led, and passed within the circle of standing rocks and into the low-arched doorway of that windowless stone monastery. There were no lights inside, but the evil merchant lit a small clay lamp bearing morbid bas-reliefs and prodded his prisoner on through mazes of narrow, winding corridors. On the walls of the corridors were painted frightful scenes older than history and in a style unknown to the archaeologists of Earth. After countless aeons, their pigments were brilliant still, 
for the cold and dryness of hideous Lang keep alive many primal things. Carter saw them fleetingly in the rays of that dim and moving lamp and shuddered at the tale they told. Through those archaic frescoes, Lang's annals stalked, and the horned, hooved, and wide-mouthed almost humans danced evilly amidst forgotten cities. There were scenes of old wars wherein Lang's almost humans fought with the bloated purple spiders of the neighboring vales, and there were scenes also of the coming of the black galleys from the moon and of the submission of Lang's people to the polypus and amorphous blasphemies that hopped and floundered and wriggled out of them. Those slippery, grayish-white blasphemies they worshipped as gods nor ever complained when scores of their best and fatted males were taken away in the black galleys. The monstrous moon beasts made their camp on a jagged isle in the sea, and Carter could tell from the frescoes that this was none other than the lone nameless rock he had seen when sailing to Inganic, that gray accursed rock which Inganic seamen shun, and from which vile howlings reverberate all through the night. And in those frescoes was shown the great seaport and capital of the almost humans, proud and pillared betwixt the cliffs and the basalt wharves, and wondrous with high fanes and carven places. Great gardens and columned streets led from the cliffs, and from each of the six sphinx-crowned gates to a vast central plaza, and in that plaza was a pair of winged colossal lions guarding the top of a subterranean staircase. Again and again were those huge winged lions shown, their mighty flanks of diorite glistening in the gray twilight of the day and the cloudy phosphorescence of the night. And as Carter stumbled past their frequent and repeated pictures, it came to him at last what indeed they were and what city it was that the almost humans had ruled so anciently before the coming of the black galleys. There could be no mistake, for the legends of dreamland are generous and profuse. Indubitably, that primal city was no less a place than storied Sarkomond, whose ruins had bleached for a million years before the first true human saw the light, and whose twin titan lions guard eternally the steps that lead down from dreamland to the great abyss. Other views showed the gaunt gray peaks dividing Lang from Inganic and the monstrous shantak birds that build nests on the ledges halfway up, and they showed likewise the curious caves near the very topmost pinnacles and how even the boldest of the Shantaks fly screaming away from them. Carter had seen those caves when he passed over them, and had noticed their likeness to the caves on Ingranic. Now he knew that the likeness was more than a chance one, for in these pictures were shown their fearsome denizens, and those bat wings, curving horns, barbed tails, prehensile paws, and rubbery bodies were not strange to him. He had met those silent, flitting, and clutching creatures before, those mindless guardians of the great abyss whom even the great ones fear, and who own not Nyarlathotep, but hoary Nodens as their lord. For they were the dreaded night-gaunts, who never laugh or smile because they have no faces, and who flop unendingly in the dark betwixt the Vale of Nath and the passes to the outer world. The slant-eyed merchant had now prodded Carter into a great domed space whose walls were carved in shocking bas-reliefs, and whose center held a gaping circular pit surrounded by six malignly stained stone altars in a ring. There was no light in this vast and evil-smelling crypt, and the small lamp of the sinister merchant shone so feebly that one could grasp details only little by little. At the farther end was a high stone dais. At the farther end was a high stone dais reached by five steps, and there, on a golden throne, sat a lumpish figure robed in yellow silk, figured with red and having a yellow silken mask over its face. To this being, the slant-eyed man made certain signs with his hands, and the lurker in the dark replied by raising a disgustingly carven flute of ivory in silk-covered paws and blowing certain loathsome sounds from beneath its flowing yellow mask. This colloquy went on for some time, and to Carter there was something sickeningly familiar in the stench of the malodorous place. And to Carter there was something sickeningly familiar in the sound of that flute and the stench of the malodorous place. It made him think of a frightful red-litten city and of the revolting procession that once filed through it, of that and of an awful climb through lunar countryside beyond before the rescuing rush of Earth's friendly cats. 
He knew that the creature on the dais was without doubt the high priest not to be described, of which legend whispers such fiendish and abnormal possibilities, but he feared to think just what that abhorred high priest might be. Then the figured silks, then the figured silk slipped a trifle from one of the grayish-white paws, and Carter knew what the noisome high priest was. And in that hideous second, stark fear drove him to something his reason would never have dared to attempt, for in all his shaken consciousness there was room only for one frantic will to escape from what squatted on that golden throne. He knew that hopeless labyrinths of stone lay betwixt him and the cold table land outside, and that even on that table land the Noxus sh- the Noxus Noxious, the Noxious Shantak still waited. Yet in spite of all this, there was in his mind only the instant need to get away from that wriggling, silk-robed monstrosity. The slant-eyed man had set his the slant-eyed man had set his curious lamp upon one of the high and wickedly stained altar stones by the pit, and had moved forward somewhat to talk to the high priest with his hands. Carter, hitherto wholly passive, now gave that man. <sighs> Carter, hitherto wholly passive now gave that man a terrific push with all the wild strength of fear so that the victim toppled at once into that gaping well which rumor holds to reach down to the hellish vaults of Zin, where gugs hunt ghasts in the dark. In almost the same second, he seized the lamp from the altar and darted out into the frescoed labyrinths, racing this way and that as chance determined and trying not to think of the stealthy padding of shapeless paws on the stones behind him, or of the silent wrigglings and crawlings which must be going on back there in lightless corridors. After a few moments he regretted his thoughtless haste, and wished he had tried to follow backward the frescoes he had passed on the way in. True, they were so confused and duplicated that they could not have done him much good, but he wished nonetheless he had made the attempt. Those he now saw were even more horrible than those he had seen then, and he knew he was not in the corridors leading outside. In time, he became quite sure he was not followed, and slackened his pace somewhat, but scarce had he breathed in half-relief when a new peril beset him. His lamp was waning, and he would soon be in pitch blackness with no means of sight or guidance. When the light was all gone, he groped slowly in the dark, and prayed to the great ones for such help as they might afford. At times he felt the stone floor sloping up or down, and once he stumbled over a step for which no reason seemed to exist— the farther he went, the damper it seemed to be, and when he was able to feel a junction or the mouth of a side passage, he always chose the way which sloped downward the least. He believed, though, that his general course was down, and the vault-like smell and incrustations on the greasy walls and floor alike warned him he was burrowing deep in Lang's unwholesome tableland. But there was not any warning of the thing which came at last only the thing itself with its terror and shock and breathtaking chaos. One moment he was groping slowly over the slippery floor of an almost level place, and the next he was shooting dizzily downward in the dark through a burrow which must have been well-nigh vertical. Of the length of that hideous sliding he could never be sure, but it seemed to take hours of delirious nausea and ecstatic frenzy. Then he realized he was still with the phosphorescent clouds of a northern night shining sickly above him. All around were crumbling walls and broken columns, and the pavement on which he lay was pierced by straggling grass and wrenched asunder by frequent shrubs and roots. Behind him a basalt cliff rose topless and perpendicular, its dark sides sculptured into repellent scenes and pierced by an arched and carven entrance to the inner blacknesses out of which he had come. Ahead stretched double rows of pillars, and the fragments and pedestals of pillars that spoke of a broad and bygone street, and from the urns and basins along the way he knew it had been a great street of gardens. Far off at its end, the pillars spread to mark a vast round plaza, and in that open circle there loomed gigantic under the lurid night clouds a pair of monstrous things. Huge winged lions of diorite they were, with blackness and shadow between them, Full twenty feet they reared their grotesque and unbroken heads and snarled derisive on the ruins around them. And Carter knew right well what they must be, for legend tells of only one such twain. They were the changeless guardians of the great abyss, and these dark ruins were, in truth, 
primordial Sarkamond. Carter's first act was to close and barricade the archway in the cliff with fallen blocks and odd debris that lay around. He wished no follower from Lang's hateful monastery, for along the way ahead would lurk enough of other dangers. Of how to get from Sarkamond to the peopled parts of Dreamland he knew nothing at all, nor could he gain much by descending to the grottos of the ghouls, since he knew they were no better informed than he. The three ghouls which had helped him through the city of Gugs to the outer world had not known how to reach Sarkamond in their journey back, but had planned to ask old traders in Dilathleen. He did not like to think of going again to the subterrene world of Gugs and risking once more that hellish tower of Koth with its cyclopean steps leading to the enchanted wood, yet he felt he might have to try this course if all else failed. Over Lang's plateau, past the lone monastery, he dared not go unaided, for the high priest's emissaries must be many, while at the journey's end there would no doubt be the Shantax and perhaps other things to deal with. If he could get a boat, he might sail back to Inganic past the jagged and hideous rock in the sea, for the primal frescoes in the monastery labyrinth had shown that this frightful place lies not far from Sarkoman's basalt keys. But to find a boat in this aeon-deserted city was no probable thing, and it, and it did not appear likely that he could ever make one. Such were the thoughts of Randolph Carter when a new impression began beating upon his mind. All this while there had stretched before him the great, corpse-like width of fabled Sarkamand, with its black broken pillars and crumbling sphinx-crowned gates and titan stones and monstrous winged lions against the sickly glow of those luminous night clouds. Now he saw far ahead and on the right a glow that no clouds could account for and knew he was not alone in the silence of that dead city. <sighs> The glow rose and fell fitfully, flickering with a greenish tinge which did not reassure the watcher. And when he crept closer, down the littered street and through some narrow gaps between tumbled walls, he perceived that it was a campfire near the wharves, with many vague forms clustered darkly around it, and a lethal odor hanging heavily over all. Beyond was the oily lapping of the harbor water, with a great ship riding at anchor, and Carter paused in stark terror when he saw that the ship was indeed one of the dreaded black galleys from the moon. Then, just as he was about to creep back from that detestable flame, he saw a stirring among the vague, dark forms and heard a peculiar and unmistakable sound. It was the frightened meeping of a ghoul, and in a moment it had swelled to a veritable chorus of anguish. Secure as he was in the shadow of monstrous ruins, Carter allowed his curiosity to conquer his fear and crept forward again instead of retreating. Once, in crossing an open street, he wriggled worm-like on his stomach, and in another place he had to rise to his feet to avoid making a noise among heaps of fallen marble. But always he succeeded in avoiding discovery, so that in a short time he had found a spot behind a titan pillar whence he could watch the whole green-litten scene of action. There, Around a hideous fire fed by the obnoxious stems of lunar fungi, there squatted a stinking circle of the toad-like moon beasts and their almost human slaves. Some of these slaves were heating curious iron spears in the leaping flames and at intervals applying their white-hot points to three tightly-trussed prisoners that lay writhing before the leaders of the party. From the motions of their tentacles, Carter could see that the blunt-snouted moon beasts were enjoying the spectacle hugely, and vast was his horror when he suddenly recognized the frantic meeping and knew that the tortured ghouls were none other than the faithful trio which had guided him safely from the abyss and had thereafter set out from the enchanted wood to find Sarkamond and the gate to their native deeps. The number of malodorous moonbeasts about that greenish fire was very great, and Carter saw that he could do nothing now to save his former allies. Of how the ghouls had been captured he could not guess, but fancied that the grey, toad-like blasphemies had heard them inquire in Dilath Lean concerning the way to Sarkamond, and had not wished them to approach so closely the hateful plateau of Lang and the high priest not to be described. For a moment he pondered on what he ought to do, and recalled how near he was to the gate of the ghoul's black kingdom. Clearly it was wisest to creep east to the plaza of Twin Lions and descend at once to the gulf where assuredly he would meet no horrors worse than those above 
and where he might soon find ghouls eager to rescue their brethren and perhaps to wipe out the moon beasts from the black galley. It occurred to him... It occurred to him that the portal, like other gates to the abyss, might be guarded by flocks of night gaunts, but he did not fear these faceless creatures now. He had learned that they are bound by solemn treaties with the ghouls, and the ghoul which was Pikmin had taught him how to glibber a password they understood. So Carter began another silent crawl through the ruins, edging slowly toward the great central plaza and the winged lions. It was ticklish work, but the moon beasts were pleasantly busy and did not hear the slight noises which he twice made by accident among the scattered stones. At last he reached the open space and picked his way among the stunted trees and briars. <coughs> At last he reached the open space and picked his way among the stunted trees and briars that had grown up therein. The gigantic lions loomed terrible above him in the sickly glow of the phosphorescent night clouds, but he manfully persisted toward them and presently crept round to their faces, knowing it was on that side he would find the mighty darkness which they guard. Ten feet apart crouched the mocking-faced beasts of diorite, brooding on cyclopean pedestals whose sides were chiseled into fearsome bas-reliefs. Betwixt them was a tiled court with a central space which had once been railed with balusters of onyx. Midway in this space a black well opened, and Carter soon saw that he had indeed reached the yawning gulf whose crusted and moldy stone steps led down to the crypts of nightmare. Terrible is the memory of that dark descent in which hours wore themselves away, whilst Carter wound sightlessly round and round down a fathomless spiral of steep and slippery stairs. So worn and narrow were the steps, and so greasy with the ooze of inner earth, that the climber never quite knew when to expect a breathless fall, and hurtling down to the ultimate pits. And he was likewise uncertain just when or how the guardian night gaunts would suddenly pounce upon him, if indeed there were any stationed in this primeval passage. All about him was a stifling odor of nether gulfs, and he felt that the air of these choking depths was not made for mankind. In time he became very numb and somnolent, moving more from automatic impulse than from reasoned will. Nor did he realize any change when he stopped moving altogether as something quietly seized him from behind. He was flying very rapidly through the air before a malevolent tickling told him that the rubbery night gaunts had performed their duty. Awakened to the fact that he was in the cold, damp clutch of the faceless flutterers, Carter remembered the password of the ghouls and glibbered it as loudly as he could amidst the wind and chaos of flight. Mindless, though night gaunts are said to be, the effect was instantaneous, for all tickling stopped at once, and the creatures hastened to shift their captive to a more comfortable position. Thus encouraged, Carter ventured some explanations, telling of the seizure and torture of three ghouls by the moon beasts and of the need of assembling a party to rescue them. The night gaunts, though inarticulate, seemed to understand what was said and showed greater haste and purpose in their flight. Suddenly the dense blackness gave place to the great twilight of inner earth and there opened up ahead one of those flat, sterile plains on which ghouls love to squat and gnaw. Scattered tombstones and osseous fragments told of the denizens of that place, and as Carter gave a loud meep of urgent summons, a score of burrows emptied forth their leathery dog-like tenants. The night gaunts now flew low and set their passenger upon his feet, afterward withdrawing a little and forming a hunched semicircle on the ground while the ghouls greeted the newcomer. Carter glibbered his message rapidly and explicitly to the grotesque company, and four of them at once departed through different burrows to spread the news to others and gather such troops as might be available for the rescue. After a long wait, a ghoul of some importance appeared and made significant signs to the night gaunts, causing two of the latter to fly off into the dark. Thereafter, there were constant accessions to the hunched flock of night gaunts on the plain, till at length the slimy soil was fairly black with them. Meanwhile, fresh ghouls crawled out of the burrows one by one, all glibbering excitedly and forming in crude battle array not far from the huddled night gaunts. In time, there appeared that proud and influential ghoul which was once the artist Richard... 
There's no Upton in there. In time, there appeared that proud and influential ghoul, which was once the artist Richard Pickman of Boston, and to whom Carter glibbered a very full account of what had occurred. The erstwhile Pickman, surprised to greet his ancient friend again, seemed very much impressed and held a conference with other chiefs a little apart from the growing throng. Finally, after scanning the ranks with care, the assembled chiefs all meeped in unison and began glibbering orders to the crowds of ghouls and night-gaunts. A large detachment of the horned flyers vanished at once, while the rest grouped themselves two by two on their knees with extended forelegs, awaiting the approach of the ghouls one by one. As each ghoul reached the pair of night-gaunts to which he was assigned, he was taken up and borne away into the blackness, till at last the whole throng had vanished save for Carter, Pickman, and the other chiefs, and a few pairs of night-gaunts. Pickman explained that night-gaunts are the advance guard and battle steeds of the ghouls, and that the army was issuing forth to Sarkamond to deal with the moon-beasts. Then Carter and the ghoulish chiefs approached the waiting bearers and were taken up by the damp, slippery paws. Another moment, and all were whirling in wind and darkness, endlessly up, 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 to the gate of the winged lions and the spectral ruins of primal Sarkamond. When, after a great interval, Carter saw again the sickly light of Sarkamond's nocturnal sky, it was to behold the great central plaza swarming with militant ghouls and night-gaunts. Day, he felt sure, must be almost due, but so strong was the army that no surprise of the enemy would be needed. The greenish flare near the wharves still glimmered faintly, though the absence of ghoulish meeping showed that the torture of the prisoners was over for the nonce. Softly glibbering directions to their steeds and to the flock of riderless night-gaunts ahead, the ghouls presently rose in wide, whirring columns and swept on over the bleak ruins toward the evil flame. Carter was now beside Pickman in the front ranks of ghouls and saw as they approached the noisome camp that the moon-beasts were totally unprepared. The three prisoners lay bound and inert beside the fire while their toad-like captors slumped drowsily about in no certain order. The almost human slaves were asleep. Even the sentinels shirking a duty which in this realm must have seemed to them merely perfunctory. The final swoop of the night-gaunts and mounted ghouls was very sudden, each of the grayish toad-like blasphemies and their almost human slaves being seized by a group of night-gaunts before a sound was made. The moon-beasts, of course, were voiceless, and even the slaves had little chance to scream before rubbery paws choked them into silence. Horrible were the writhings of those great jellyish abnormalities as the sardonic night-gaunts clutched them, but nothing availed against the strength of those black prehensile talons. When a moon-beast writhed too violently, a night-gaunt would squeeze and pull its quivering pink tentacles, which seemed to hurt so much that the victim would cease its struggles. Carter expected to see much slaughter, but found that the ghouls were far subtler in their plans. They glibbered certain simple orders to the night-gaunts which held the captives, trusting the rest to instinct, and soon the hapless creatures were borne silently away into the great abyss, to be distributed impartially amongst the bulls, gugs, ghasts, and other dwellers in darkness, whose modes of nourishment are not painless to their chosen victims. Meanwhile, the three bound ghouls had been released and consoled by their conquering kinsfolk, while various parties searched the neighborhood for possible remaining moonbeasts, and boarded the evil-smelling black galley at the wharf to make sure that nothing had escaped the general defeat. Surely enough, the capture had been thorough, for not a sign of further life could the victors detect. Carter, anxious to preserve a means of access to the rest of Dreamland, urged them not to sink the anchored galley, and this request was freely granted out of gratitude for his act in reporting the plight of the captured trio. On the ship were found some very curious objects and decorations, some of which Carter cast at once into the sea. Ghouls and night-gaunts now formed themselves in separate groups, the former questioning their rescued fellers and then past happenings. It appeared that the three had followed Carter's directions and proceeded from the enchanted wood to Dilathleen by way of Near and the Sky, stealing human clothes at a lonely farmhouse and loping as closely as possible in the fashion of a man's walk. In Dilathleen's taverns, their grotesque ways and faces had aroused much comment, but they had persisted in asking the way to Sarkomond until at last an old traveler was able to tell them. 
Then they knew that only a ship for Lelag Lang would serve their purpose, and prepared to wait patiently for such a vessel. But evil spies had doubtless reported much, for shortly a black galley put into port, and the wide-mouthed ruby merchants invited the ghouls to drink with them in a tavern. Wine was produced from one of those sinister bottles grotesquely carven from a single ruby, and after that the ghouls found themselves prisoners on the black carter, on the... <clears throat> and after that the ghouls found themselves prisoners on the black galley, as Carter had once found himself. This time, however, the unseen rowers steered not for the moon, but for antique Sarkamond, bent evidently on taking their captives before the high priest not to be described. They had touched at the jagged rock in the northern sea which in Gannick's mariners shun, and the ghouls had there seen for the first time the real masters of the ship. Being sickened despite their own callousness by such extremes of malign shapelessness and fearsome odor. There, too, were witnessed the nameless pastimes of the toad-like resident garrison, such pastimes as gives such pastimes as give rise to the night howlings which men fear. After that had come the landing at ruined Sarkamand and the beginning of the tortures whose continuance the present rescue had prevented. Future plans were next discussed, the three rescued ghouls suggesting a raid on the jagged rock. and the extermination of the toad-like garrison there. To this, however, the night gaunts objected, since the prospect of flying over water did not please them. Most of the ghouls favored the design, but were at a loss how to follow it without the help of the winged night gaunts. Thereupon Carter, seeing that they could not navigate the anchored galley, offered to teach them the use of the great banks of oars, to which proposal they eagerly assented. Grey day had now come, and under that leaden northern sky a picked detachment of ghouls filed into the noisome ship and took their seats on the rowers' benches. Carter found them fairly apt at learning, and before night had risked several experimental trips around the harbor. Not till three days later, however, did he deem it safe to attempt the voyage of conquest. Then the rowers trained and the night gaunt safely stowed in the foresail, the party set sail at last. Then... The rowers trained and the night gaunt safely stowed in the forecastle. Forecastle is the word, not forecastle. Forecastle. I know sea terminology. <sighs> then the rowers trained and the night gaunt safely stowed in the forecastle. The party set sail at last. Pickman and the other chiefs gathering on deck and discussing modes of approach and procedure. On the very first night, the howlings from the rock were heard. Such was their timber that all the galley's crew shook visibly, but most of all trembled the three rescued ghouls who knew precisely what those howlings meant. It was not thought best to attempt an attack by night, so the ship lay too under the phosphorescent clouds to wait for the dawn of a grayish day. When the light was ample and the howling still, the rowers resumed their strokes, and the galley drew closer and closer to that jagged rock whose granite pinnacles clawed fantastically at the dull sky. The sides of the rock were very steep, but on ledges here and there could be seen the bulging walls of queer, window of queer windowless dwellings and the low railings guarding traveled high roads. No ship of men had ever come so near the place, or at least had never come so near and departed again, but Carter and the ghouls were void of fear and kept inflexibly on, rounding the eastern face of the rock and seeking the wharves which the rescued trio described as being on the southern side within a harbor formed of steep headlands. The headlands were prolongations of the island proper and came so closely together that only one ship at a time might pass between them. There seemed to be no watchers on the outside, so the galley was steered boldly through the flume-like strait and into the stagnant, fetid harbor beyond. Here, however, all was bustle and activity, with several ships lying at anchor along a forbidden stone along a forbidding stone quay, and scores of almost human slaves and moon beasts by the waterfront handling crates and boxes, or driving nameless and fabulous horrors hitched to lumbering lorries. There was a small stone town hewn out of the vertical cliff above the wharves, with the start of a winding road that spiraled out of sight toward higher ledges of the rock. Of what lay inside that prodigious peak of granite, none might say, but the things one saw on the outside were far from encouraging. 
At the sight of the incoming galley, the crowds on the wharves displayed much eagerness, those with eyes staring intently, and those without eyes wriggling their pink tentacles expectantly. They did not, of course, realize that the black ship had changed hands, for ghouls look much like the horned and hooved almost humans, and the night gaunts were all out of sight below. By this time, the leaders had fully formed a plan which was to loose the night gaunts as soon as the wharf was touched, and then to sail directly away, leaving matters wholly to the instincts of those almost mindless creatures. Marooned on the rock, the horned flyers would first of all seize whatever living things they found there, and afterward, quite helpless to think except in terms of the homing instinct, would forget their fear of water and fly swiftly back to the abyss, bearing their noisome prey to appropriate destinations in the dark, from which not much would emerge alive. The ghoul that was Pikmin now went below and gave the night gaunts their simple instructions, while the ship drew very near to the ominous and malodorous wharves. Presently a fresh stir rose along the waterfront, and Carter saw that the motions of the galley had begun to excite suspicion. Evidently the steersman was not making for the right dock, and probably the watchers had noticed the difference between the hideous ghouls and the almost human slaves whose places they were taking. Some silent alarm must have been given, for almost at once a horde of the mephitic moon beasts began to pour from the little black doorways of the windowless houses and down the winding road at the right. A rain of curious javelins struck the galley as the prow hit the wharf, felling two ghouls and slightly wounding another, but at this point all the hatches were thrown open to emit a black cloud of whirring night gaunts which swarmed over the town like a flock of horned and cyclopean bats. The jellyish moon beasts had procured a great pole and were trying to push off the invading ship, but when the night gaunts struck them, they thought of such things no more. It was a very terrible spectacle to see those faceless and rubbery ticklers at their pastime, and tremendously impressive to watch the dense cloud of them spreading through the town and, and up the winding roadway to the reaches above. Sometimes a group of the black flutterers would drop a toad-like prisoner from a loft by mistake, and the manner in which the victim would burst was highly offensive to the sight and smell. When the last of the night gaunts had left the galley, the ghoulish leaders glibbered an order of withdrawal, and the rowers pulled quietly out of the harbor between the gray headlands, while still the town was a chaos of battle and conquest. The Pikmin ghoul, the Pikmin ghoul allowed several hours for the night gaunts to make up their rudimentary minds and overcome their fear of flying over the sea, and kept the galley standing about a mile off the jagged rock while he waited and dressed the wounds of the injured men. Night fell and the gray twilight gave place to the sickly phosphorescence of low clouds, and all the while the leaders watched the high peaks of that accursed rock for signs of the night gaunt's flight. Toward morning a black speck was seen hovering timidly over the topmost pinnacle, and shortly afterward the speck had become a swarm. Just before daybreak, the swarm seemed to scatter, and within a quarter of an hour it had vanished wholly in the distance toward the northeast. Once or twice something seemed to fall from the thinning swarm into the sea, but Carter did not worry since he knew from observation that the toad-like moon beasts cannot swim. At length, when the ghouls were satisfied that all the night gaunts had left for Sarkomond and the great abyss with their doomed burdens, the galley put back into the harbor betwixt the gray headlands, and all the hideous company landed and roamed curiously over the denuded rock with its towers and aries and fortresses chiseled from the solid stone. Frightful were the secrets uncovered in those evil and windowless crypts, for the remnants of unfinished pastimes were many, and in various stages of departure from their primal state. Carter put out of the way certain things which were, after a fashion, alive, and fled precipitately from a few other things about which he could not be very positive. The stench-filled houses were furnished mostly with grotesque stools and benches carven from moon trees, and were painted inside with nameless and frantic designs. <clears throat> Countless weapons, implements, and ornaments lay about, including some large idols of solid ruby depicting singular beings not found on the earth. These latter did not, despite their material, invite either appropriation or long inspection, 
and Carter took the trouble to hammer five of them into very small pieces. The scattered spears and javelins he collected, and with Pickman's approval distributed among the ghouls. Such devices were new to the dog-like lopers, but their relative simplicity made them easy to master after a few concise hints. The upper parts of the rock held more temples than private homes. The upper parts of the rock held more temples than private homes, and in numerous hewn chambers were found terrible carven altars and doubtfully stained fonts and shrines for the worship of things more monstrous than the mild gods atop Kadath. From the rear of one great temple stretched a low black passage, which Carter followed far into the rock with a torch, till he came to a lightless domed hall of vast proportions, whose vaultings were covered with demoniac carvings, and whose center yawned a foul and bottomless well like that in the hideous monastery of Leng, where broods alone the high priest need where broods alone the high priest not to be described. On the distant shadowy side, beyond the noisome well, he thought he discerned a small door of strangely wrought bronze, but for some reason he felt an unaccountable dread of opening it or even approaching it, and hastened back through the cavern to his unlovely allies as they shambled about with an ease and abandon he could scarcely feel. The ghouls had observed the unfinished pastimes of the moon beasts and had profited in their fashion. They had also found a hogshead of potent moon wine and were rolling it down to the wharves for removal and later use in diplomatic dealings, though the rescued trio, remembering its effect on them in Dilathleen, had warned their company to taste none of it. Of rubies from lunar mines there was a great store, both rough and polished, in one of the vaults near the water. But when the ghouls found they were not good to eat, they lost all interest in them. Carter did not try to carry any away, since he knew too much about those which had mined them. Suddenly there came an excited meeping from the sentries on the wharves, and all the loathsome foragers turned from their tasks to stare seaward and cluster round the waterfront. Betwixt the grey headlands, a fresh black galley was rapidly advancing, and it could be but a moment before the almost humans on deck would perceive the invasion of the town and give the alarm to the monstrous things below. Fortunately, the ghouls still bore the spears and javelins which Carter had distributed amongst them, and at his command, sustained by the being that was Pikmin, they now formed a line of battle and prepared to prevent the landing of the ship. Presently, a burst of excitement on the galley told of the crew's discovery of the changed state of things, and the instant stoppage of the vessel proved that the superior numbers of the ghouls had been noted and taken into account. After a moment of hesitation, the newcomers slightly turned and passed out between the headlands again, but not for an instant did the ghouls imagine that the conflict was averted. Either the dark ship would seek reinforcements, or the crew would try to land elsewhere on the island. Hence a party of scouts was at once sent up to the pinnacle to see what the enemy's course would be. Yeah, I'm going to stop it at the... Prepared to prevent the landing of the ship and just leave that as a nice, as a nice cliffy. So uh, they now formed a line of battle and prepared to prevent the landing of the ship. That's the last line. Deal with it.